Once upon a time, a special coffee brand was born, Enchant Coffee. They believe that a good brew should be part of every good story. Enchant Coffee is a gourmet, fairy tale themed coffee company that offers flavors like Mad Tea Party, Potion of the Sea Witch, The Sleeping Curse, and The Enchanted Bean. Each is a unique blend of 100% Arabica coffee. Sign up for the newsletter at EnchantCoffee.com to receive 10% off your first order. EnchantCoffee.com. Add some magic to your morning. Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. Today we're running one of our occasional in-conversation episodes, where there's no particular theme, other than the guest being active in the world of folklore, and we just see where things go. Usually to strange, unusual and fascinating places, and this one is certainly no exception. Tracy Nicholas chats today with the Reverend Peter Laws, who is, according to his own website, author, journalist, speaker, podcaster, film critic, and weirdo. His words, not mine. Peter is the host of three podcasts, which you'll hear more about in the interview, and the author of four fiction titles, as well as a non-fiction work, The Frighteners, which looks at why we as a species have a fascination with the morbid. Before doing what he does now, Peter was an ordained minister, albeit one spending more time with the macabre than most, and he still regularly preaches and speaks for churches. So, let's hear about ghosts, monsters, why people are evil, and the significance of black rabbits, from Tracy and Peter. I'm Tracy Nicholas, and I'm here today with Peter Laws. Uh, He is the host of the podcasts Frightful, Our Curious Past, Creepy Cove Community Church, and he is also uh, an expert on the podcast Uncanny. He's an author of five books, and he is an author for the magazine 14 Times. Uh, Welcome, Peter. Thanks for being here. Hello. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your path that you took to get to where you are today with your many, many podcasts? Yeah, I know it, it, it can be frustrating trying to describe like who I am and what I do, because a lot of the things, there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on. And also some of it can even sound contradictory to some people. Um, but in a nutshell, I'm a person who all of my life has been fascinated by the spooky and macabre um, horror films and uh, ghost stories and all, and also like, you know, true tales of the paranormal. And I found those sorts of things to be a really kind of a thing, a thing that just turned the colors up of life for me. So I, I like the idea of there could be an epic world just beyond my door, you know, so that sort of stuff excites me, a kind of ambition, I suppose, for um, life to be a bit more exciting than perhaps it is. That's not to say that I found life boring. I was I'm kind of grew up very happy. But um, those those sorts of topics just really, really have attracted me. And so now these days, um, I'm uh, blessed and lucky enough to be able to work in that arena. So yes, with with writing, 
and um, podcasting and journalism and things like that. But they always tend to revolve around scary, spooky, shocking, paranormal, weird stuff. Okay. Um, why don't you describe your various podcasts and what they're about? Sure. Um, I mean, Frightful, I suppose, is the most popular podcast. And so I've been kind of excited to see how popular that's become. And that basically is me telling um, immersive, scary, true stories of the paranormal and true crime, mostly paranormal, but, you know, we do do true crime as well. And so that's, a, yeah, when I say immersive, I'm kind of, I could just record podcasts and just do the voice, but I get, I get really kind of into the production value of it. So the sound effects and music. And um, sometimes I go a little bit over overboard with that. So for example, I did a, I did an episode once about a, a Welsh vampire case, uh, you know, in the 2000s when a teenager believed he was a vampire and he murdered an elderly lady and drank her blood. Not a very pleasant experience. Um, but uh, she was murdered at a certain time of night while watching the news. And I remember spending about an hour and a half trying to track down the exact news uh, reel that she was watching that night, just so I could have it muffled in the background, even though nobody would know that's what it was. But it, so that, that got to be far. But yes, yeah, so it's immersive. So fr um, Frightful is uh, Scary True Stories. And then there's another show called Our Curious Past, which um, occasionally can have scariness to it, but often that's just about weird, quirky, forgotten history. The latest episode, for example, is about the um, pathologist who stole Albert Einstein's brain without permission, a topic I hadn't really been aware of until recently. So it's looking at like unusual history. And uh, the third podcast that I do is more of a kind of labor of love, really, because it's too weird and quirky to get monetized properly, whereas the other two get advertising revenue. Speaking of your advertising, I and and the fact that uh, Frightful is immersive, I find it hilarious when you do the <laughs> ads and they relate to the story. Oh, uh, yes, thank you. I know I do get a kick out of that. Sometimes it can be really embarrassing because yes, you, it, and, and cringy, but I really, I, I really enjoy the cringiness of doing the ads, like full on ads. But yes, I once had to do an advert for, um, there's, a, there's an American company called Adam and Eve, which um, sell, uh, you know, I think like sex toys or I don't know what it is, but it's like lingerie, all that sort of thing. We have an equivalent in Britain called Anne Summers. And uh, I had to squeeze that into an episode, which was about a weird haunting of a kind of distressed nunnery or something. And um, yeah, in the middle of that, the advert suddenly kicks in and I'm saying things like, uh, normally on this show, you would hear when you hear moans and groans coming through the door, it would be of a frightening <laughs> type. But not all moaning through the wall can be bad. And you'll find that out if you visit adamandeve.com. <laughs> so so I, yes, thank, I'm glad that you enjoy that because um, I get a quite a kick out of that. But um, Anyway, yes, so uh, Creepy Cove is the third podcast that I'm involved with, and that's kind of such a weird creation, but it's been like a bit of a passion of mine. And that is literally, that was, that was, that was born during the pandemic. Um, my, my last novel came out during the pandemic, and I wasn't really in a rush to write a new book. To be honest, I wasn't even in a rush to read a new book. I don't know what it was about the COVID era, but I just wanted to smaller things to read. I, I didn't even read hardly any books during that time, which is very strange. But um, I, made po I made a podcast called Creepy Cove because I noticed that lots of churches, for example, 
had automatic kind of community building digital spaces where people who go to churches were still meeting with their fellow kind of parishioners on, on, a, on a Sunday, but doing it through Zoom. And I just thought, oh, what about people who don't go to church? Could we create an open-minded, progressive church, um, like, like a fictional church, but set it in a town, which is a mysterious fishing village where all horror movies actually happened. It's so high concept, but it's literally like, when you listen to it, it's like listening to an actual full church service with hymns and uh, sermons on well-being and weird comedy. Um, but all of the characters are like, you know, from The Shining or vam vampires or Dracula or whatever. So it's really weird. But um, I was encouraged to see people really respond to that, particularly atheists and Satanists <laughs> contacting me and said, I'm not into church at all, but this this speaks to me. Okay, I have to ask, have you ever done a an online confession? No, I haven't. That, yeah, what a great idea. Yes, I haven't done yeah, that. That no. was a lot of fun. But yeah, I mean, that show was really cr crazy because it had, um, I did have a Patreon connected with that. So patrons got like extras. And so, for example, the church had a um, uh, Jason Voorhees from the Friday the 13th movies. He used to do the, the Keep Fit class in the church. And so on Thursdays, he did that. And so made made an extra for patrons patrons to listen to Jason Voorhees go on a run with him, like an actual 30 minute run where he would kind of pace you and talk, but along the way would be slaughtering campers. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So yeah, it was really crazy. But um but yeah, so I have I don't keep that up to date as much because it's just it takes so long. I do all the music, I do all the voices and um it's yeah so and, and because i can't get really paid for that because it's so freaky weird um i have to do that every now and again got it so going back to the other podcasts how do you select the stories that you're going to tell because i heard one uh just yesterday that was about chicago where i live and it was when i was a teenager and i had never even heard of it yeah i i I do try to dig very deeply to find things that perhaps haven't been explored elsewhere. That's not always easy because there are so many podcasts out there and YouTube channels that it's really difficult to, to find things that people don't know about. So one of the things I do tend to do is I research and then I discover a topic and then I might look up, you know, has there, have many people done this before? Um, often you find they have, but not that many. Occasionally you'll find, oh gosh, no one knows about this. And, and you get excited, then you've got to kind of, not exclusive, but you know what I mean? Something that is novel and unique. But then what I do tend to do is once I start researching those things, I never, I never rely on, uh, you know, Wikipedia or things like that. Um, I remember when I was, you know, doing some training and I, we got told by the examiners, if we, if you ever refer to Wikipedia, we'll mark you down. Like that's not ever allowed. And I was like, okay, fair enough, because it can be unreliable, but it can be a great starting point. So it means that when I research things, I tend to dig into kind of the original newspaper articles or into books or, um, you know, kind of dig deep that way. And you end up discovering that some things that are spouted as common knowledge are not true. And so you try to kind of, as best you can, but sometimes it can be so hard because you get like I did a, I did a horrible uh, 
exorcism murder case that barely anyone was talking about at the time that happened in Frankfurt for Frightful. But when you look into different newspapers, sometimes they say it happened on a certain date and then you get a different date. Mm. And you're like, I have no way of discovering when the actual date is. But yeah, but if it's true crime, I'll, I'll often like read through the actual court transcripts oh, wow. to try and get things, yeah, to get things right. Or I'll dig into the, the weather for that particular day just to confirm that if a book says it was raining when a person was murdered, was it? And you might look and you say, no, it wasn't. <laughs> so it's a little bit anal. But, but the hope is, ultimately, it's not, Frightful is not, He's not trying to do anything grand other than it, it's, it is designed to try and scare people and to try and get them unsettled. That's sort of the modus operandi of that show. Whereas with Our Curious Past, that's a bit different because that is trying to sometimes try to move people emotionally and to explore things that can be sad or, or moving. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so the, 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 the two slightly, slightly different things, but hopefully they're immersive and, and interesting yeah, I, and authentic as possible. I really only listen to Frightful when I'm out on my walk, when it's bright and sunny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm thank you. That's good to hear that because uh, yeah, it's, it's nice to get people contacting me and saying they do find it frightening. And I, and I will find myself you know, let's say for, I'm, I'm just working on a really interesting poltergeist case episode. Um, and I've got two actors coming in to the studio tomorrow to record for that. But with that, you know, I'll be really paying attention to the sounds of, you know, banging on the walls and stereo, you know, the separation of that to make sure if you wear, if you're wearing headphones, you get the experience of it being, being creepy. But interestingly, I, I did a, I did an episode recently on the, uh, the, the so-called hitchhiker effect in the paranormal, which is this idea of spiritual, sorry, supernatural contagion, where you might uh, you might go to a kind of haunted location and you have a supernatural experience. And in this case, it was specifically looking at the infamous Skinwalker Ranch in Utah, and how people, after having spiritual supernatural experiences, come home, and it continues at home, as if the like the haunted mansion, you know, the ghost has followed you home. And um, what was very interesting about that is when I was recording the second episode, I was, I was using the live where I had got access to the live webcams of Skinwalker Ranch because I was part of the insider program for a while. And uh, so I had Skinwalker Ranch going, learning about this weird um, hitchhiker effect, but then weird things started happening in my house and it could have been totally unrelated. But it was, so in the episode, I'd said, by the way, everybody, I recorded this while in the background, I've got the feed of Skinwalker Ranch going, who knows, something weird might happen to you. And I, I wasn't trying to be smart. I just was like, who knows? Because this is, this is what's the, what the claim is. And literally, like, in the next few days, people who I know and trust, so that not the type of people who would mess around, either would publicly or some would privately message and say, I'm, I listened to that second episode last night and the next morning when we woke up, our shoelaces of our shoes were tied together. What? And we don't have kids. Another woman on Twitter, who I know a little bit, said, oh, this is, this is a clever little um, marketing ploy because I put a video on saying, actually, people are starting to say weird things are happening after listening to this episode. So 
just giving you the heads up. You might think this is making it up. And people understandably were saying, this is a clever marketing ploy to get us to listen. And this uh, one woman said, well, I'm going to listen to it. And she listened to it uh, as a sort of challenge. And then the next morning she messaged me and said, what have you done? I, I can't get out of bed because everything's dizzy and something's gone wrong with my head. And I was really concerned. I was like, oh my gosh, are you okay? Maybe it's vertigo or something. So a bunch of things happened related to that time. Another woman had their, she was listening to it and her little kid started talking to an invisible person in the back garden um, and like wandering around with it while, she, while on the show she was listening to it and it was talking about a wolf-like creature appearing in the back garden. So Gosh. who knows, but it was, it was kind of creepy, but I, I come out, I came out of the insider program because my Wi-Fi always went totally, totally crap and wrong whenever I watched those webcams wow. and I couldn't get any work done. So I, I came out of it because I just, because I need my Wi-Fi. Well, now, Could be I'm sure. now I'm both terrified, but absolutely I'm going to listen. So if you hear from me, <laughs> well, it's the second, ep for some reason, the first episode is actually, I think the better one in terms of scariness and descriptions of what happens. It's all based on Pentagon papers of people who went to this ranch and, you know, government officials who went home and saw crazy things. But the principle of frightful, and to be honest, all of my work is to come from almost like a journalistic point of view rather than a believer or skeptic point of view. I'm, I don't know if this stuff's true or not. Mm -hmm but I'm just not prepared to kind of pick one side. Uh, so I present it and just say, well, this is what the claim is. What do you think? Right, right. So it doesn't matter if I'm a believer or not in listening. It's, it's just. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't really. I mean, when I work on uncanny, which is the, um, the BBC show, it's uh, interesting. The, they, they have how that works is we get people into the studio who have had, paranormal experiences, often haunted houses, but sometimes it's to do with uh, UFOs, but mainly hauntings and poltergeists. And some of the cases are incredibly compelling. And the people who come in are saying, I don't believe in ghosts, but uh, let me tell you the story about when I saw a Victorian child in my bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> and but, but there's loads more, it's not just that. So some of it is incredibly compelling. Yeah. But uh, on that show, I, they bring in, as well as the witness, they bring in an expert, well, they call them experts, and uh, one to represent the paranormal belief side and one to represent the skeptical side. And so I'm brought in as to represent the paranormal belief side because I am open-minded to this and think it could well be true. Okay. But I'm not 100% believer or skeptic. I kind of agnostic moving towards mostly i think there probably is something else interesting um so can we move a little bit to talk about your writing and the books that you've written yeah um i mean i i i've written uh four novels and a non-fiction book since 2017 and so i was excited to be able to get the opportunity to you know, get book deals and published. It, it, it took a while, um, you know, to do that. I decided to go the kind of traditional route and get a literary agent. And um, yeah, it was a kind of a long road in a sense to get there, but was, was, was excited to, to get a, get an agent at least at first. And I started really, it was all about writing novels. And I wrote uh, 
I've written four in the same series, which follows a ex-church minister called Matt Hunter, who has become an atheist and is dead set against Christianity in particular. But because he has knowledge of, you know, cults and Christianity and folklore and mythology, uh, he and he believes, you know, Christianity is just another example of mythology that he is called in to um, consult the, with the police if they have anything that looks related to faith or cults or the supernatural. And um, so in the first book, for example, Purged, he's on the trail of a Christian serial killer who believes it's the kindest thing to do to baptize people as adults and then murder them immediately afterwards, because then they won't lose their faith and perhaps be condemned to hell. Instead, they'll be kind of fast-tracked to heaven. No time to and sin. No time to sin, yeah. And in some ways, there's a kind of strange logic to that. If you truly believe that our personal moral choices will send us to hell, then the killer in that book is is basically saying, well, surely the wisest thing to do would be to kill people. Or there's discussions in that book of, well, what about children? Like, do children, when they're growing, are they pure up until a certain point? And then they get free will and then choose sin, live for whatever, 60 years, and then are in eternal torment. Wouldn't it be the loving thing to murder them while they're innocent? And then they would have eternity in heaven. Now, I, obviously, I, That's I don't think this is a. I don't think this is a good idea. Um, I think it's psychotic, but I like the idea of kind of there being a logic to, or you know, a reason, a weird, twisted reasonableness behind what some people do. So yeah, those books explore uh, religious ideas, but also the supernatural. The supernatural comes in as a thread, particularly in the second book, Unleashed, which explores poltergeists. And that's pretty close to home because you yourself were ordained as a minister, right? Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I, I grew up very anti-church, uh, you know, antagonistic towards Christianity. I was in a band called Creatures of the Night for a while. And um, I wrote a song called Diabolo, which said, uh, dust off that altar and upturn that cross. You better burn your Bibles on God. You must goss. And the word goss, by the way, in the northeast where I'm from means to spit. <laughs> so there was just <laughs> so there's all this stuff about spitting on the Bible, and uh, yeah, I was very antagonistic towards Christians. But then, uh, weirdly, well, it's a long story, but to everyone's shock, not least my own, I became a Christian at university, which uh, was pretty wild. But what I was interesting about that was it was the same. It was the same themes and desires and hopes and fears that had fueled my interest in the supernatural and horror all my life, that I ultimately am a person who's frightened of death and suffering and wants to have a sense of security and significance uh, and love and hope. Um, and, you know, so watching horror films and all that sort of stuff was a way of me to kind of explore the, I think, quite tantalizing message of horror, which is unlike any other genre that says perhaps the supernatural exists. 
maybe there's such a thing as eternal life. It might be scary, eternal life, but you know, no other genre really does that, I don't think. And so, yeah, I mean, it was a similar journey. And yes, so I, I wound up becoming a long story short, uh, you know, became a, a Christian and then, um, yeah, eventually became an ordained minister and work, worked as one of those for 10 years. But unlike Matt Hunter, he, he kind of turned his back on it. I have in some ways turned my back on it practically in the sense that most of the work I do today is writing and uh, podcasting, broadcasting type stuff. But uh, he turned away from it because he has cosmic issues with, with God. Well, I mean, there is a, a strong connection between spirituality and, you know, the macabre, because you have to believe in a lot of magical things in pretty much any profession. Yeah. Well, exactly. And, and essentially, it's, and, and with the paranormal as well, like but people can look at me and go, oh, hang on, you're, you're a church type person, and then you love horror films, and then you're into the paranormal. They don't seem to, that doesn't seem to make sense. But to me, both, all, all three of those things, particularly paranormal and religion, are asking the same questions, which is, is there anyone there? Right. Uh, and that's a question that it, I don't, I'm not ashamed to ask. <laughs> like, I think for some people, they feel it's kind of embarrassing to ask that. I have a, I've, I've written recently on the, the prospect of the paranormal community being almost like a new religion. I, I think it does kind of have very religious uh, themes and hopes and uh, functions, mm -hmm. sociologically speaking. Mm -hmm. But yeah, um, so when I was uh, when I was writing my novels, I also wrote a nonfiction book. Um, I don't recommend writing a nonfiction book in the same year as you're writing a novel, but you know, it turned out that way. And the nonfiction book was really an answer to the question, if you're a Christian, like why on earth would you get a kick out of blowing a zombie's head off <laughs> in a video game? You know, why do you like watching films where the ending is bleak and dark and everyone dies? Like that's not, that doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote this book called The Frighteners, which in the, in the American edition is called The Frighteners, uh, a journey through our cultural fascination with the macabre. And in Britain, the uh, subtitle is why we like monsters, ghosts, death, and gore. And that book was an amazing opportunity to write. That took me to Transylvania and Rome and throughout Britain, meeting unusual people, well, unusual to normal people, but I got on well with them. And these were people who were drawn to the macabre and um, you know, people who believed there were vampires or people who, like a historian who had a diagnosis from the doctor and so, a bad one and so requested that he sleep on a mortuary slab for the night to try and cope with the diagnosis a woman who kept a coffin her coffin her future coffin in her lounge wow um built for her by her boyfriend as a gift and these people who for many people would go well that's a bit creepy but ultimately they reminded me of why I like horror and scary stories. It's because I'm trying, I, I am aware that I'm not going to be around forever, physically speaking. And that does scare me. That does give me a kind of death anxiety. And so I all, all my life have taken the things that scare me and put them into stories or watch them as stories in films. And that's what that book's about, The Frighteners. It's, it's, it's saying that the macabre has a function. 
and the people who like it are not necessarily people who are dark-hearted. Many of them are just very sensitive people who care about this stuff and they need ways to rehearse it or address it in a way that is not going to be too anxiety inducing. It's one thing to sit and talk to someone about your actual death or plan your own funeral. Even just thinking about it, you know, I'm like, oh, don't say that. It's a downer. <laughs> but it's quite different to watch a zombie film, which is essentially about, you know, dead bodies and death and what happens. But it's just much more manageable somehow. So in the it's, it's an interesting dynamic. Yeah, I mean, I think that it is, it's very difficult for people to think about, talk about death, whether it's their own or, you know, we're, as a society, I think that we just have moved away from that. It's, you know, people are yeah. taken to funeral homes. They're not laid out mm -hmm. parlor like they used to be. And mm -hmm. so we don't have good practice at dealing with it when the time comes. And so I think that you know, maybe that is why so many of the stories that we tell, whether you're a believer or not, tend to be really dark. Yeah, precisely. And, and that's why I've, I, in the book, I, I kind of make a strong argument to say, we mustn't remove this from our culture. And this often goes in the face of some fellow churchgoers and Christians who believe that the way to have a good, healthy culture is to remove all of these challenging topics and to, you know, to not have, uh, you know, scary stories or, or um, more kind of progressive uh, groups. And I, I guess I'm a pretty progressive guy, but, you know, of, of saying things like, well, let's not, we shouldn't tell scary fairy tales to children because it might make them uncomfortable and it might frighten them. Whereas my point is they, they need, they need to be frightened uh, at, in a safe space because where else are they going to learn courage? So, right. um, so, so yeah, I, like that book is, is a kind of love letter to humans and their fascination with the morbid. And what I've been really touched by is the, I guess you could say the pastoral impact of that book of people writing to me and saying, cause it can be lonely having these interests. It can be a feeling of there's there's something wrong with me especially if you're driving and you see a car crash and you, you want to see it, you want to look at it and people can feel there's something wrong with them, especially if they've got family and friends who come in while they're watching some slasher movie and go, Oh, you're watching this crap again. Like what's wrong with you? Can't you just be normal and watch like a Disney film or whatever, which Disney films are pretty dark too in places, lots of death in those. <laughs> and the book has prompted many, comments from people saying either, thank you, this book spoke to me, and I feel less lonely with this interest. And also I had a few messages from people saying, thank you, I read this book because my wife is obsessed with horror. I think it's freaky and weird. And I'm encouraged to know that my wife is not a freak. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, so that was that was a that was a blast writing that book. So do you think there's a difference in the, the kinds of stories where there's, you know, a, a plucky human overcomes whatever the supernatural force is, the get away from the zombies or kill the vampire, and the ones that have more of a darker ending. Do you think that those kinds, those two different kinds of stories serve a different function or is it all the same? 
Yeah, I think they do serve slightly different functions and they appeal to slightly different kind of personalities. And so I, I, I quite happily will watch, you know, a, a program where, you know, at the end, everything's okay again. But normally that will be in films that are about, I don't know, yeah, like Disney films and those sorts of things where kind of I want, I, I want to feel encouraged and hopeful and walk out with a spring in my step going, yeah, and, and so corny. I love corniness and I, I'm not all horror. I, I love to watch this sort of stuff. Tangled, I think, is a masterpiece, right? So, so, um, so all of these sorts of films have their place, but um, there's for, for people who perhaps are deep thinkers, like I guess I am, maybe overthink perhaps, um, we know that life is not always ending on the triumphant chapter. Uh, you know, sometimes life doesn't go that well, and there's a fear of, of, of being in denial. And so if I was to only watch films where everything worked out well in the end, something in my psyche would be saying, you're now putting your head in the sand. Mm -hmm. You're not addressing your fears. Uh, and so that's why I, I do, I do like horror. I watched one last night where, you know, every, everyone dies at the end, an entire family dies, including the 13 year old kid, great 1982 slasher movie called this uh, superstition also known as the witch, but I've got a bit of a soft spot for that film. But, um, and then the hero, you know, at the end, you think, oh yeah, he's going to get away, but he doesn't. And he gets dragged in the water. And so many horror films end like that, where even if they killed the monster in the final frame, you see the camera pan to the monster's egg, right? Because you're like, oh, it's coming back again. You know, it cracks open. And that to me has a weird sense of kind of authenticity about it mm -hmm. because it's saying, nah, don't, don't relax. Don't right. relax so sure. But, but you get exhilarated because you're enjoying that feeling. Right. It's really, it's very psychologically complex. Um, but, uh, you know, I do think horror could potentially also be, be a way of kind of denying the realities of death. I think that's something that I have realized since writing the book. And if I'd written the book like this year, rather than a, a couple of two or three years ago, I might've added some different nuances to it. But I think uh, partly horror has been a great tool for me to deal with my fears, but it can sometimes be a, a tool to bury the reality of my fears. Sure. And to trivialize those things. But this is what, but in the midst of all this, this is why I'm drawn to the claims of the paranormal and the claims of religion. Mm -hmm. Because into all of these darknesses, which I absolutely think are real, and you see it every day in the news or whatever into those darknesses, religion and the paranormal and supernatural horror movies say, but this might not be the end. Right. So even, even if Jason Voorhees slashes you in half with a machete, not very nice, but ultimately who cares? Cause this is just the end of the beginning. There's a, there's a whole adventure awaiting us after death. And that can sound like naive hopefulness to, to many people, but uh... I, I also really enjoy the kind of films where the hero is morally ambiguous. You know, the vampire is the hero. Yeah. And and that, I think, I, I guess that speaks to me personally, because I, I always think, okay, maybe I'm not that bad, even though I, you know. Yes. Yeah. I mean, this is actually a really interesting, I mean, you're speaking, you know, you're from Chicago, aren't you? You said, uh, or, or nearby. 
I mean, this is a particularly interesting cultural difference, I think, between American culture and, say, British culture. In British culture, we we can be quite self-deprecating and willing to say, oh, you know, maybe we haven't got it all together. So one of the annoying things about English people is, you know, if you, or British people, if, uh, you know, I've got examples of when, let's say somebody said, a company let's called called an English person and said, oh, we hear you're the you're the top neurologist in your field. We'd like to hire you for this important job. And the English person may potentially be the top neurologist, but they'll say, no, oh, I don't know about, I don't, I'm not quite, I'm not quite sure I'd call myself the best and would kind of do themselves down. Whereas, and this might be a full stereotype, but I've just heard other American friends of mine say, no, no, you, you really should be more honest about your skills and American culture, particularly in action movies, wants to paint the picture of, no, no, we, we will be victorious in the end. Mm -hmm. And some of the, uh, you know, the, the, the issues at the, in America at the moment to do with kind of critical race theory and kind of not, not wanting to, you know, certain cultures in America, not wanting to kind of in, in, even in textbooks to talk about, say, what happened with the native American Indians or, you know, institutional racism, all that sort of stuff. It's like, well, you know, don't say that because it makes us out to be the bad guy. We don't like that. And so films, yes, do often, particularly in the 1980s, are just purely the, the hero is, is the hero and he's great. But then subversive filmmakers like John Carpenter, for example, would make a film like Big Trouble in Little China, which is great. But Kurt Russell is a is an oaf, you know, like in that film, he's like screwing up all the time. British audiences loved it. It's like, oh, this is great. You know, this guy's a mess, but he's somehow managing to save the day. But when that film came out originally, it was heavily criticized because against Schwarzenegger and Stallone, mm -hmm. Kurt Russell just looked like a complete idiot. You know, he's, sh he's shooting his gun and there's rock, he's shooting a hole in the ceiling and rocks are falling in his head. So yeah, I, I think you're right. I think there's there's different types of hero. And sometimes I really enjoy watching things where it's a typical hero. Knight Rider, you know, old shows like that. The A-Team, which are very generic and samey, but sometimes that's what I'm in the mood for. Right. But I know in reality that we're far more flawed and complex. And we are a mixture of kind of hero and, and failure. Yeah, I mean, I think that you you make a good observation. I think business-wise, Americans absolutely will be like, yes, I, I am the, the best. Because mm. it, it, there is a, a cultural belief that if you talk yourself down, people will believe you and yeah, you yeah. get ahead in your career. So people are afraid to say, no, 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 probably not, you know, but in our personal lives, I think it's different. I think that, you know, okay, it's all self-deprecating humor and, you know, we, we know we're a mess, right? Um, ah, okay. So interesting. Yeah. It's, it's, so yeah, maybe that's a business thing then. Cause, cause I did, I did hear this from a business conference actually, you know, that, that, that an American coming in and saying, this is how people work in business. So that, um, that's interesting you say that. And also, by the way, it's, it's, this is something British people should learn, I think, from American people is that, the honest honesty of confidence. Right. Sometimes you really are quite good at what you do. Yeah. And it's kind of weird to pretend you're not. Yeah, it's it's that joke um, where 
uh, in every interview, someone says, oh, you know, what, what's your biggest weakness? And they'll, you know, they'll be like, oh, no, I, I'm too honest or, you know. Yeah, yeah. I just work too hard. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so back to the podcasts. Do you have one or several favorite stories that you've done? Um, yeah, I, I mean, there are quite a few that I um, that really resonate with me. But there was one I did recently, which kind of stuck with me because no no one else had covered this story, probably because it was from just one eyewitness. Hmm. And so, but it was about a woman. It was called the episode was called "The Aliens on the Train." And it was just about a woman who got onto a train, uh, an American woman who was in Britain, and she just sat next to a person who she said her eye, the person's eyes were strange and um, that she was moving her head in a strange way. But as she looked at this person, she looked at the other woman sat next to her and she was also doing the same. And uh, then she looked at throughout the train and she saw other people that were like that. And, you know, I won't go into depth of what happens, but some freaky things happen and then everyone leaves the train. And it's just, it was so, so strange, but it was this idea of people believing that the people around them were not actually who they were. And for me, it was a story that it was, it was great to sound design and explore, but it was also very interesting because I thought on both levels, if that's, if that's just a person who's having some sort of psychotic episode, that's terrifying. Mm -hmm. So that's frightful in and of itself. And just to try and empathize with somebody who has that feeling. But then the claim was rather that, you know, are aliens amongst us? You know, ultimately that was kind of the claim that was being made in that episode, which is something that, you know, even with the kind of the, this the upcoming, uh, you know, UFO hearings in America and people talking about uh, at the high levels of government, whether or not we actually have alien technology and that aliens are here. But what's been very interesting is since I put that episode out, I, I wasn't trying to follow any zeitgeist. I just thought it was a spooky, creepy story. But then I just started noticing other podcasts and other news outlets telling stories about people who are on public transport or in public and not being convinced the people they're with are human or indeed real. And there's a, there's a famous video going around just, just this week of a woman that's on a train, oh, sorry, on a plane. She gets kicked off an airplane and she's standing there. And it's been, it's been a viral video that's been going around for the last few days. And she's just pointing at this man at the back and she's saying like, that mother not real. <laughs> and, um, and she's very, very distressed. And at first it's shared in a kind of like nutcase alert, you know, everyone laugh at this woman. Then it's a, oh gosh, you know, she might be having a psychotic breakdown. That's, that's sad and scary. But then it's a, wait a minute, all of these stories are coming out about people witnessing inhuman people, not, not watching the skies for aliens, but literally just looking to the passenger seat next to you and going, who are you? So those sorts of stories I find quite interesting because they creep me out on lots of different levels. Um, so yeah, that was, that was an episode that kind of resonated with me, but other episodes, uh, you know, have, have, um, 
I've been more kind of grounded. Like I did a really good, well, it's a really good episode. But I did the episode. So that's, that's the British British part of me going, don't say it's good. But it, no, it was. It was very good. But yeah, episodes about like sort of um, demonic possession cases um, where, you know, for me, I'm, I tend to be kind of cautious when it comes to claims of demonic possession and think it can often be kind of mental health related. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't stop other more stronger believers going to the extent of murdering family members because they believe they're demonically possessed. So I've done a, couple, a few episodes on cases like that one in Frankfurt, which is a whole family that just uh, murdered uh, a member of the family because they were convinced she was possessed. And then a really scary case in Britain where a man um, believed that his wife was possessed and um, he killed the dog and then he tore her apart with his bare hands. He tore her face off. It was absolutely appalling and was covered in her blood and was just roaming around this town in Britain screaming, this is the blood of Satan. This is the blood of Satan. And his story is just kind of quite, quite chilling. So those sorts of things really kind of give me the creeps. Yeah, I, I know a woman who uh, her job, she's a demonologist and oh yeah she will take you know people will go to her and say i've got this demonic attachment and you have to get rid of it for me and that's what she does so ah right yeah and weirdly because because claims of demonic possession and demands for exorcism are on the rise i mean my, my last latest novel the matt hunter four is called possessed and it's uh and it's about the the growth the the really explosive growth in recent years of demands for exorcism so that the Vatican have been struggling to keep up with uh, demand. Wow. It's, it's, it's all very fascinating to me, especially when you're talking about the um, aliens that people are now seeing in very public environments. And that seems like a shift because, you know, before it'd be out in a field, you're driving down a country road and, you know, you're the only car around and you lose power to the car and then, you know, you see. Mm. And it's it's always off in the desert or out in the woods or. And, yeah. and this seems to be, you know, very, um, you know, a, a different thing where it, you're around other people. And, mm -hmm. you know, so it, do you think that there's a cultural reason for that shift? Yes, I do. Um, and of course, it could mean, like, for, from a non cultural reason, uh, you know, someone would just come and, and say, oh, because they are now with us, the aliens are amongst us. And it's literally as basic as that. So they were in the air for a while. But now they've infiltrated our society. So of course, we're starting to see them. Or others would be saying, like, they've been with us for ages, but we're starting to become awake to this. So we're starting to notice them. But if you were to look at it from a purely cultural point of view, yes, I think that um, you could link the change in um, fear, the the, traject the kind of direction in which the fear goes in saying like, you know, this, the, the, the threat is out there somewhere. Mm -hmm. And that does tie in with the same principles, let's say in the 1950s when flying saucers were around, people tended to see the threat as being out there. It was the Russians or it was you know, um, the Nazis, right. and we were together as a team on the floor, but on the ground together, but the, the, the enemy was out there. And so naturally, if you were going to kind of project your fears into a kind of folkloric, supernatural, paranormal type image, 
the aliens are out there. But what's happening in our culture now is that, particularly in in, in America, but uh, you know, I, I'd say really across the world, is the the, the fear of the enemy has changed. Uh, yes, there's lots of there's still enemies out there, but there's a real sense that the enemies are amongst us. The enemies are our government or there are kind of conspiracy theories, you know, that like you can't trust people or it might be your doctor, you know, like okay, COVID conspiracies and stuff. People saying, oh, the doctors are, have planned this pandemic. Like I, I don't go for these conspiracy theories personally, but um, if the fear is that the baddies are now at your doctors or in your government or celebrity, mm-hmm. um, then is it a surprise to find that people are starting to suspect the person on the train with them could be an alien? Do you know what I'm saying? So it's like that it, we, if it is cultural, there's a, there is a kind of logic to why you would bring the enemy out of the sky and into the chair next to you. Well, yeah, I mean, I personally live in a very liberal community and mm-hmm. we're, we're actually the first town in the United States that passed uh, uh, to give reparations to. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. So I'm thinking I'm in my, you know, liberal little enclave. And when Trump started running for president and I could mm-hmm. see signs pop up in my neighborhood and I'm like, oh, my God, you know, so it, it was this feeling. Yeah. The yeah. enemy is amongst us here. So I think. That- yeah. And, and of course, and they, and they would see you as, as the enemy. Exactly. Uh, you, you know, and. um and that's the, the the sad part of it. You know, it's like it's the tri- There's such a kind of a clear tribalism, right? That that takes place. But but what I mean in the fifties, the tribe was the in the West or like America with Britain, you know, and the Allies fighting the monster out there. Right. And now it's become far far more tribalistic, and, and a part of that's to do with the internet and uh, connection, so that you don't have to that you do you no longer have to have a geographically based tribe. Right. Um, I, I would say at this point, I have more friends in the UK than I do here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so that, that frees you up. But then when you're with your new non-geographic tribe, that tribe does require, even if they don't, even if it doesn't exist, they do require some sort of enemy to contrast against. And this is a sad part of humanity is that we sometimes don't, we're not able to kind of feel confident in our own positions unless we have painted some sort of one dimensional baddie out there. And And the baddies uh, might be, yeah. And it's always, it is, it is a perception that it is a one dimensional kind of thing. You know, yeah. you don't think that people who are, you know, on the opposite side of politics, as you have a rich and complex inner life like you do. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And this is this is why I am drawn to as kind of, you know, as cringy as it could be, as it can sound. But this is why I am still drawn to this uh, like kind of Jesus mentality, uh, the, 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 that part of Christianity. I still think a lot of Christianity, you know, cultural Christianity is, is bad for the world. <laughs> you know, like, like the, the way it's, it's projected and the, um, the, the, cons- the, the sheer like blatant conservatism, which is really based more on, um, you know, cultural values than actual 
Jesus values, who was very into kind of sharing and inclusivity and all that sort of stuff. But yes, this is a good example where, you know, even, even a phrase like love your enemies, mm -hmm. um, is, is important for me, for me to slow down before I categorize the other person and say, well, wait a second, like, why, why do they think that way? Mm -hmm. And if I was living their life, wouldn't I think that way? Um, yeah. So yeah, it's interesting. I, I would say for, for me, I think that anybody, every religion is a religion of one because every person identifies, you know, based on their own personal experiences. Mm, yeah, yeah. For example, I know plenty of people who identify as both being a Christian and being a witch. Yeah. And, and they're performing, you know, spells and doing all of that kind mm -hmm. of thing. And so I think that, you know, everything, we, we all believe something just slightly different, even when you're talking about an organized religion like Christianity, mm -hmm. but you, you bring yeah. your own experiences to it. And, and you, you know, and, and there are plenty of people who are Christians who are horrible and, and they're, they don't, <laughs> yeah. they don't live by the values that they say they live by. Um, oh, totally. Yeah. And plenty of atheists too. Huh? We're, we're horrible across the board. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Equal opportunities, uh, you know, for, for badness, but, but no, you, you're quite right. Uh, and, and this is why I find it kind of helpful just to kind of, uh, have a kind of radical empathy mm -hmm. for people who I, I dislike, but I, I also, my, my fascination with say horror, is because I get drawn to things that repel me. But this translates to this topic. So I, if, if someone was to say, look at my YouTube feed or look at the people, I don't follow necessarily, I don't necessarily follow people I really disagree with on Twitter, but I will, I will regularly check out what the most offensive people are saying. Right. People, uh, you know, um, because I had this, I don't know what you call it, doom scrolling, or, no, not doom, hate scrolling or, like a morbid interest mm -hmm. because if if they i'm not that interested in just hearing what people say that to support what i think i kind of get it i get more in that would be like watching a disney movie and i want to i want to see something that riles me or shocks me so sometimes i will be you know listening to people who i go i can't believe he's saying that that's disgusting <laughs> Oh, I'll listen to his next podcast and it's very complex and, I, and, I, and I'm not trying to promote these people. It's just, it's, it's the same, it's the same with architecture, architecture. Um, I, I'm a big fan of brutalism, hmm. which is just pure concrete. Um, and things that just look like kind of 1970s car parks. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the core reasons I find that interesting and beautiful is because so many people say it's disgusting and horrible. Interesting, but we all do that. I mean, I'm, I belong to several groups on Facebook that is purely to call out incels, um, the involuntary okay. elements, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, mm -hmm. and it's, you know, I, I just, I can't believe what they're saying. And yet I'm, yeah. I, you know, I joined this group through, or these groups through my own free will and, you know, it keeps popping. Yeah, yes, <laughs> yeah. So I think and some of what these people, yeah, and, and it's some of this stuff is just horrific. So it, it, there, are, there are points where I go like, wow, my my empathy is yeah, is, is struggling there. But I, I remember when I was I, I for the Frighteners book, I did a, one of the chapters. I mean, there's different chapters on you know like the supernatural, and so I stayed in a haunted hotel for that, or 
what about monsters when I went on a on a werewolf hunt in Hull, um, trying to hunt down this this wolf werewolf that was sighted. It's all these weird experiences. But for the chapter on killer culture, which is, you know, serial killer culture and why people are fascinated in that, I explored the murderabilia market, which is people who buy you know, locks of Charles Manson's hair for $40 a strand. I had some of that in my hand. Um, or people will buy, uh, you know, little um, little bags of dirt that have been dug up from places where people have been raped and murdered. Oh! It's 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 really, like, and, and that chapter really stretched my empathy to, uh, you know, levels to breaking point, because for some of it, I was just like, this is horrible. Uh, but um, but in that, I, I did some studies of um, serial killers, and it was very interesting during that because I was, you know, I was just disgusted with these people who were murdering children, and and I remember watching some interviews with them and physically shouting out to the screen, you know, you scumbag, how could you? And mm. and sometimes like it were tears, you know, down my face because some of this stuff was so intense. But then. But then having to look at their brain scans and then having the psychologist say, oh, but do you know that that killer, his empathy, he, he didn't have empathy. Like he didn't have that tool. Interesting. It just wasn't there. And um, he did, or emotions, like he didn't understand emotions. And I think now that we're more neurodiverse appreciative and you know people with autism whatever you can go oh, okay yeah i get it right you, you don't quite you know uh communicate in perhaps the way that person communicate okay right um maybe it could be a bit rude sound a bit rude but i know you're not being rude because all those sorts of things um i found myself having almost a bit of empathy for these absolutely hideous killers thinking well what would i do if i like i have a lot of empathy but that's not a skill that I have, that I should be proud of. Mm -hmm. It's a, gosh, I'm glad I have empathy. Well, because what would happen if I didn't? It's on a scale, right? I mean, you, you talk about a narcissist and then sociopath and then psychopath. And you, know, yeah. you have more empathy for the narcissist than you are for the psychopath, right? Because yeah. they're willing to go that much further. And I, I think mm. that's where, you know, it starts to drop off when you realize yeah. that they don't, you know, a psychopath doesn't see other people as actual real people. They're just, you know, puppets yeah. in their life. And they they can't understand why it would matter if they, you know, mm. tortured someone or killed someone because they're not really as real as, you know, the psychopath thinks they are. Precisely. And, and this is, I guess, my point in, in, in this chapter when I was writing it was that I was very quickly, when I've seen these horrible serial killers moving to the classic, you're evil. Mm -hmm. You know, you're an evil person who has met, who has had all of the same tools as I've had and have just made the conscious choice to torture and kill people. Right. And that, therefore, there can be no other explanation that you are the devil <laughs> or fueled by you know, evil. And that's what it, where a lot of people tend to tend to think. But if you really think about it, you start to realize, well, it's more complex than that. But it's tricky to talk about it, because you're not wanting to make any excuses for these people, right? Um, it's very, very complicated. And but this is what I mean by empathy, you know, I, I think it, it can help with uh, uh, 
explorations and i think our story the stories we tell and tell one another can can help fuel that empathy but uh, not everyone has it so you kind of watch out for them it depends on circumstance too right like you think oh you know this person murdered someone they're terrible but what if it was a parent protecting their child you know and they had to do well yes yeah 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 so it, it does and you, and you can and you can hear interviews with people who do something really horrific and um and they'll say the psychologist will say they genuinely thought doing that was better than letting the the person sort of like live because in their twisted world they thought they were doing that person a favor well like you to me be, yes exactly yeah and me being a rational you know and, and having the 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 good fortune of having you know a fairly working brain um that i i can differentiate and go no you shouldn't baptize people and kill them straight after but uh, i think that's why the kill this is sometimes something i i grapple with in my books is that the people who uh, turn out to be the murderers and stuff i i find it really hard not to just present them as evil mm-hmm, right i i often end up after i've spent a lot of time with them through a book i i i start to g- gain a kind of sympathy for them uh, as well as still being totally horrified right by what what they do so let me ask you this have you ever had a supernatural experience that's a good question um i have had i've had various experiences which i've noticed that i i have a habit of rationalizing them very quickly because I think it just makes me feel better. <laughs> so even though even though I'm fascinated by the paranormal, and if I was to go out with a bunch of people to a haunted house and see something, I'd probably find that fascinating and 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 even fun. When I, if I'm by myself, that's when I get scared, because I need to have someone else with me to confirm that there is something actually there rather than it just being in my mind because <laughs> that's that's scary in itself you know so right. so i'm not co- i'm not fully confident of my own mind in the sense that I think it gets scarier as you age yeah yeah exactly but you know like because i i'm i'm frustratingly open-minded uh you know annoyingly so and so if i go to bed tonight and then i wake up and i see a hooded monk at the bottom of my you know bed crawling up <laughs> Ready, ready to like you know well, lick my face now i know what nightmare i'm gonna have tonight <laughs> yes yeah um but if i if i see that i am not automatically gonna go like some of my other friends will say um oh well, you know it's it's a haunted house you know uh whereas i'll be get what well, it could be but what happens if i was imagining it and if it was i mean and i'd say okay i was having a dream or a hypnagogic hallucination so let's say i'm walking in town the next day and I'm strolling through town and I walk into the coffee shop. And as I turn to sit down at my chair, the hooded monk is crawling across the table toward me. And, and I look around and then he's gone and I'll say, did you see that? And nobody saw that. For some people, they would instantly go, wow, that's the, that's the skinwalker, um, sorry, the, the hitchhiker effect. It's following you. Whereas I probably would go, oh crap, I'm losing my mind. <laughs> um, but if I'm sat with someone 
who saw it last night in my room and then saw it the next day, then that just changes everything. Right. Because it's like, wow, I don't, I, I think it's far less likely that you and I were having a hallucination. And, and it becomes therefore frightening, but exciting. You just think, wow, my hopes and thoughts that there is another world is real. So it's quite tantalizing. So it means that when I have experiences, so, you know, I've had, I've had plenty of experiences when I've been sitting here working in my office, for example, and then I'll suddenly hear, hear weird banging and I've gone upstairs and I'm like, and then I've like looked around the house and there's just nothing. And we live in a detached house and you can tell it's coming from inside a cupboard or something. It's not in, and, and I'll, and I know other friends who'd go, wow, interesting. I've got a poltergeist in the house, but I will just go, hmm, that was weird. Uh, the, the other day when I was, um, uh, I think, yeah, it was not long after this hitchhiker effect thing I did, but maybe a couple of, couple of weeks or so, I was literally sitting reading a comic <laughs> in, um, in a coffee shop and I had my feet on the side like this and I just suddenly felt something hit my ankle. And when I looked down at my ankle, there was, do you know, do you have, do you call them protractors in yeah. America? Yeah. yeah, like for mathematics, there was like half a protractor balancing on my ankle and it was it was like what <laughs> and i looked under the table and i was like has somebody stuck it under this table and i've knocked it off and there was no thing nothing to stick it with and there was no no area to to kind of jam it into and it was so stupid and ridiculous but it was hovering on my ankle and i posted this online i was like this has just happened knowing that people are going to think it's stupid and I've, I've now forgotten about it until you asked me that question. Interesting. So, so that's my point. It's like, you know, I've had a series of weird things like that, but they're so kind of out there that I just kind of forget about them. Um, yeah, I've, I, 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 I've had other things which are harder to forget, but anyway, sorry, go on. Yeah. I've had, um, you know, knocking that you know mysterious knocking nobody's there things like that but the the really big ones i've had paranormal experiences i've had have been really boring you know just a, okay. a guy come up and asked me to use the bathroom in a theater i was working in and then disappeared and but he was completely normal oh, okay. it was nothing weird it was just like I, I didn't even realize anything had gone on until after the fact when i couldn't find the guy in the mm. bathroom so I, I think that um, my yeah, experiences what... would be <laughs> the most mundane paranormal experiences. <laughs> but I've had stuff when I was younger as well, um, which like my second novel, uh, which is called Unleashed, is is about kind of a demonic black rabbit figure, uh, and um, that was that was based on something I saw when I was a teenager. My, my friends and I used to go ghost hunting, and we would kind of hop over the fences of. Um, national trust properties in Britain and do Ouija boards in the in the kind of just asking for trouble. Yeah, I know, I know. I made a Ouija board in woodwork at school, um, <laughs> and uh, and it just again, this this was my searching for hope in the face of death, <laughs> ultimately, but also the thrill of just kind of exploring things. But then, yes, yeah, sort of like we're in this kind of old miners' asylum place uh, and saw or sanitarium. And, and saw this weird kind of humanoid dark figure on top of the roof and uh, just like standing literally on the roof, looking down and then running away from that. And uh, 
writing that up in my diary and being very, very scared and never seeing this thing again until I was in my early twenties and um, I became a Christian. And the year after being a Christian, I realized that um, being a Christian helped me get in touch with my emotions a bit more and realized there's probably some difficult things that I had to talk about with somebody, you know, traumas and whatnot. And, uh, and so did so. And the person who did that from the church said, come and meet with me and the vicar. So I did one day and on my way to this meeting, I was getting kind of weird images of kind of many eyed goats and stuff and feeling like insects in my hair that weren't there. It was so weird, but again, it could be psychosomatic. I don't know, but it was and, and like dreaming about wolves, you know, howling up at my window at night that night and like i've never had this experience before but i was on the bus and i was like what's going on and anyway went to this thing and uh the vicar there said we'd like you now to um tell us confess every single thing you've ever done you have ever been ashamed of wow all of it every single thing turns out i've got a lot of those things <laughs> Um, it was in my early twenties. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it took me about two hours, and it was an emotional experience. I, it was sure. I, I, they. I wouldn't call it an exorcism. It was more like an emotional exorcism in the sense of like, I don't know. I just like te- I, like racking my brain and then getting towards the end, going like, um, I think this is. Oh crap! Yeah, I remember that. And then telling, and I told them everything. You know everything, and um, and afterwards, the the vicar there just said. I'm so glad you did that because when I met you at church two days ago, I knew you needed that because there was a dark figure walking with you. Oh my God. And, and I was like, okay. And that creeped me out. And then one week later I was singing in a nightclub. This was just a way of me making some money when I was a student. I was singing in this kind of black seaside nightclub and I went to bed in the hotel. And when I went to sleep, just as I was trying to get to sleep, I woke up and I saw the figure from the roof all those years before, just kind of moving towards me, um, the bed. And it looked like in my mind, it just was, it was a black rabbit, even though it wasn't necessarily looked like a rabbit, like that was its name. It was so weird. Wow. And, and then it went and I've never experienced anything like that since. That's and that and that became the inspiration for the second book. Sure, sure. Wow. But, I mean that that was pretty pretty wild. So Peter, where can people find your podcast, your books? Yeah, I mean the, the kind of the, the 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 central hub of my life, I suppose, would be peterlaws.co.uk. Um, if you just Google Peter Laws, you'll tend to find me. But um, my podcasts uh, are all available on all of the usual podcast sites, including Spotify. So if you just search for either Frightful or Our Curious Past or Creepy Cove Community Church, or if you wanted to check out Uncanny, that's on um, BBC Sounds. But I think it might be available uh, on other platforms too. And then books-wise, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the Frighteners is available in stores in the US or in in Britain um or I can probably the easiest way is ordering it online right and uh, and, and my novels as well you, like that you sometimes find those in stores but mainly online okay great thank you is there anything else that you want to share with the listeners before we go 
Well, only to say, um, uh, you know, do connect uh, with me via uh, Twitter and um, threads, Instagram, all the usual places. I'm uh, Rev Peter Laws. I also have a Patreon, which um, I probably should have mentioned that earlier, but I keep forgetting. But that's actually an interesting little group because it's people who kind of, you know, recognize the, the, the stuff I do and, and want to support that. And they get ad free episodes of podcasts, but also, you know, we do Zoom calls together and we kind of connect and we chat and support one another because you know, life could be hard. Um, but that's, that's patreon.com forward slash Peter Laws. Great. Thank you so much. And thanks for taking thank the time you. today. No, thank you. It's been fun. Thanks to Tracy and Peter for recording that conversation. As Peter said, head to his website at peterlaws.co.uk for all of the things. And you'll find a link in the show notes and on the episode page for this episode on our website. Our new show, Stories from the Hearth, will be launching soon. In this podcast, we're pulling out old folk tales and stories and giving them a new audience, with the difference being that they'll be read by you. We have a team of listeners who wanted to narrate for this show, and the catalogue is growing in advance of release. If you'd like to join them, please email folklorepodreaders at gmail.com and you can look for your own stories or you can have one sent to you. You can record on your own, or you can join up with us for a recording session. Stories from the Hearth is being run by Tracy Nicholas for the Folklore Podcast, so drop her an email if you'd like to be involved and listen out for more announcements soon. If you enjoy the Folklore Podcast and you feel there's value in the work that we put in, then do please consider showing us a little support from time to time to help us to keep things running. You can sign up at patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast and you can get extra content tailored to the monthly amount that you choose or you can just make a one-off donation on the podcast website at www.thefolklorepodcast.com and there's a link on the front page. The Folklore Podcast is proudly independent but we can't run it as a full-time concern because we like to eat and to pay bills. But if we could, there's lots more on our wish list that we could do. So all donations help, and please think of us when you draw up your Christmas gift list. Thanks for listening. See you next time.